Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. John 12, verses 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. Good morning again, family of God. I kind of feel like I don't have to preach after Chauncey's prayer time. We already had church up in here. But I'm going to go ahead and preach anyway. Today we are taking a break from our study of the book of Exodus because it's Palm Sunday. As we've already said a couple of times, the day in which we remember and meditate upon that blessed event where Jesus Christ, King Jesus, our Lord, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But the book of Exodus and Palm Sunday are connected because in the book of Exodus we read about the first Passover Celebration, the first Passover festival. And now the events that we're reading about today from John chapter 12 occur 
in preparation to the Passover, Jewish people and God-fearing Greek folks are flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday when they remember that God has acted by grace to set his people free. And as they're coming, this is more than an ordinary Passover. Because not only is the Passover festival being fulfilled in a special way, but many prophecies of the Old Testament, many storylines of the Old Testament, many expectations of the Old Testament are being fulfilled right now on this day. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah coming in riding on a donkey. And as we reflect on both John 12 and Zechariah 9, the title for my sermon today is Behold King Jesus. Behold King Jesus. I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and just grow in our love for Jesus today. Grow in awe for Jesus Christ and an excitement about the fact that Jesus is the King. So everybody help me out. Say, Jesus is the King. And as our text is also going to teach us, as Jesus himself is going to teach us in this text, to see the truth rightly that Jesus is king involves a response of our soul, of our heart, of our mind and of our body. Seeing Jesus rightly means trusting him. It means fearing him. It means loving him. It means dying to ourselves to confess that he is Lord, which is the path to true life. So would you bow your heads with me one more time? I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to see Jesus this morning in a fresh way. So I'll be quiet for a moment while you cry out to God and ask him to speak to you. And then I'm going to pray for us. Our Lord God, we love you. We love you this morning. When I say that you are our only hope, we are day by day, including in this moment, desperately dependent upon your mercy and your grace. And we praise you because your mercy and grace and steadfast love never fail. And I ask for your help right now. Would you help us to lift our gaze from ourselves? That we want to be focused on ourselves this morning. Pray that you would help us to lift our gaze from our problems and from our opportunities, from our circumstances, that these would not be our focus this morning and that you would put our attention on Jesus. That your spirit would help us to see Jesus, to understand who he is, to know him personally, to love him, to trust him. And Jesus Christ, in this moment, we just proclaim that you are Lord and we love you. We worship you and we want to follow you. God, we ask that you would forgive our sins and fill us with your spirit now and help us. In Christ's name, amen. Behold King Jesus. That's our theme today. And I just want to make a series of observations about Jesus from this text. First one is that Jesus is the promised King of Israel. That's what everybody's celebrating in the opening verses of John chapter 12. A large crowd is present now for the feast of the Passover, says verse 12. And then verse 13 says that people from this crowd, when they heard Jesus was coming, took branches of palm trees 
and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Everybody say Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You might underline those words, the king of Israel. By crying out that Jesus is the king of Israel, they're proclaiming this is the Messiah, the savior, the king we've been waiting for to rescue us. The rest of their cry comes from Psalm 118, and it's a celebration of the fact that God is the Savior as well as a petition to God, God save us now. But this is being done in faith that Jesus is the long-awaited King of Israel who has to who has come to save his people. These palm branches that they're waving were a symbol of national identity for Israel associated with the Maccabean revolt. If you don't know about the Maccabean revolt, just type it into Wikipedia later because I don't have time to summarize it for you right now. Or actually, you can go to YouTube and type in Maccabees and get some uh, funny music videos where some Jewish people will summarize for you the Maccabean revolt and the festival of Hanukkah. Dude, that's your assignment for later today. Um, there will be multiple assignments, but that will be the most fun of them. But in short, this is a way of remembering how God has acted in the past to deliver his people from their enemies and of celebrating that. And, a, and we got Hanukkah and Passover imagery colliding here in a way that is saying we feel like we're about to be set free again. We feel like we're about to be liberated again. God's about to deliver us from our enemies. And it's all centered upon the person of Jesus, the king of Israel. That's the first observation here. Second observation is that Jesus is a humble king. Not only is he the powerful king of Israel, but he's a humble king. Everybody say humility. In the history of the world, power and humility were not associated ever until you get to Jesus. The heroes of ancient cultures were not known for their humility. They were known for their strength. And often pride was an expression of that strength. But Jesus comes in humility. He comes in humility because he's sitting on a donkey's colt while he rides into town. This is not a war horse. This is not something that a king rides up in. We're, we're used to this. We understand this in our culture. If the president comes to town, he's going to be riding in a very special limousine. It's going to be bulletproof. There's going to have lots of other limousines around it. There's going to be a fanfare. We're going to shut down streets. This happened a while back when President Obama came to visit Oklahoma. It was a big deal. You shut down streets, but he's coming in pride and glory. This this would be what Jesus is doing here would be kind of like if the president came to town driving my beat up, dented old scion. Nothing wrong with the scion. It's reliable. So it's a donkey, right? Gets you from point A to point B, but it's not. It's not the right of a king. Jesus is coming in humility. And the, the text here quotes from Zechariah 9, which is also printed in your bulletin. We heard it read a moment ago. And you'll see the word humble right there in Zechariah 9. It says, here's the king, humble and mounted on a donkey. Do you see that? You might circle that word, humble. A humble king. This is a form of power, of saving power, that comes with humility and love and gentleness. Wow, we need to remember and recover in our historical, cultural moment and in our church that power and glory in the kingdom of God are expressed through humility and gentleness and service. The way Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 23, verse late, uh, excuse me, verse 11, is... 
The greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Power that comes in humility. This is Jesus, God himself, king of all kings, who has clothed himself with humility to come to serve us. And he's teaching us, likewise, to clothe ourselves with humility to serve one another. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. Third observation here. Jesus is not only the promised king of Israel. He's not only a humble king, but Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John points out to us something that is not mentioned in the other Gospels. It's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Namely, the big reason why there's so many people in this crowd hyping up Jesus coming into Jerusalem right now is because right before this, Jesus had done his most remarkable miracle. You could go read it later in John chapter 11 if you want to tonight, right after you watch the Maccabees video on YouTube, maybe before. And in John chapter 11, you read about a moving scene in which Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, has died. And Jesus goes to visit the home of Lazarus and his friends Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus. And it's a scene of grief. Jesus sees the grief of the people and, and weeps with them. He cries with them. And then standing in front of a whole bunch of people... He stands and says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man rises from the grave and walks out in front of all kinds of people. And look what verse 17 of your text says, John 12, verse 17, says the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They couldn't stop talking about the fact that Jesus has power over death. And verse 18 says the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Everybody is flocking to Jesus right now saying you're the king because he has the power of resurrection. Don't you want a king or a president or a ruler or a savior who can save you from death? In the last year, I've spent a lot of time. By hospital beds and in funerals and in nursing homes. And I know there's a number of people in our congregation right now who are grieving for loved ones who have passed, as am I. And every time I face death and I face the reality of death, I remember the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 in which he's just real honest about the ugliness of death and he calls death an enemy. But he says the enemy death will be defeated by who? Who's going to defeat death? Jesus, King Jesus. And in John chapter 11, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Death has no power over those who trust in Jesus Christ. Death is not the end. Death does not get the last word in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Lord of resurrection. And it's because he has raised Lazarus from the dead that the people are now flocking to him saying, you're the king we want. We want to put you on the throne. Not only is he the promised king of Israel, the humble king, the resurrection and the life, but Jesus is more than the king of Israel. He's the king of all nations, all nations. So everybody say all nations. We see a hint of this in the dismissive, disdainful remark of the Pharisees in verse 19. 
Text says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Whole world is going after Jesus. This is one of many places in the Gospel of John in which the enemies of Jesus are complaining about his influence, but they're saying something much more profound than they realize. And John wants us to see it. And then this verse is followed up immediately by verse 20, in which we read, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. You might circle that word Greeks. This is a word that means Gentiles, Greek-speaking folks who were not Jewish. They might have been called God-fearers. That was a common term for Gentile people, Greek people, people from non-Jewish ethnicity who had yet come to see that the God of Israel, whom the Jews worshipped, was the true God. And they wanted to honor him. So they have come to now to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover festivities. And this is being marked here in our text as a key moment because the fact that Jesus is drawing the nations to himself is a sign that God's promised salvation is at hand. Jesus is the Lord, not just of one ethnic group, not just of one cultural group, but of all the nations, of all the peoples. Only Jesus can unite the world. Only Jesus can overcome the tensions and the pain and the hostility that exists between nation states, but also that it exists between different ethnic groups and cultural groups within our own country. Jesus is the one who can bring reconciliation. He can reconcile all of us sinners to God and to one another. He's the king of all nations. This, these Greeks, when they come to Jesus... They're excited to talk to him, but it's interesting. Jesus doesn't meet with them, or at least we're not told that he meets with them. Look at what happens next. The Greeks, verse 21 says, they came to Philip, one of the disciples who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let me pause right there. At that moment, I suspect strongly that Philip and Andrew were getting excited. Because they know that when Jesus says the Son of Man is about to be glorified, what he means is that he, Jesus, is about to establish his kingdom on the earth. He's about to bring his righteousness and peace and just to heal the wounds of the world. And they're excited about that, but... They do not get it. Just like the people who were shouting Hosanna really didn't get it either. Because what they're imagining is probably something like this. All right, we've already got a bunch of Jewish folks who are saying Jesus is the king of Israel. Now these God-fearing Greeks are coming and they are being drawn to him too. It's time for a strategy meeting. We're going to set Jesus on a throne now. He's going to become the political military deliverer that we're expecting. But that's not the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing. That's not the kind of kingdom Jesus wants to bring. And they're going to be shocked by the next point, by Jesus' response. Here's my next point. In addition to being the resurrection of and the life and the king of all nations, Jesus is the seed who dies for the life of the world. Look at verse 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's a powerful metaphor. As long as that apple was hanging on that tree, it's just one apple. But if it falls into the earth and decays and rots and dies, that seed now can germinate and begin to grow. And another apple tree can come and a large crop of apples can come from that. There is life, prolific life spreading to heal the world, but it comes through death. Notice how strange this is. Jesus just brought Lazarus back to life. The people are flocking to Jesus saying, you're the king we want because he's the king of life. He's the king of resurrection. And they think that means he's the king who's going to save us from death. And they're sort of half right. But Jesus says, the way my salvation is going to come is through my death. There's a paradox here. He's the king of life, but his kingdom comes through death. This is the first hint. We're going to see this teased out as we continue to make observations on these texts. But this is the first hint that the kingdom of Jesus is something bigger and broader and deeper and more joyous than we tend to imagine. It's something that brings healing to our hearts at a deeper level than we might have anticipated. But it's also something that's much more costly to us than we might have imagined. Why does Jesus have to die to solve the problems? Isn't he strong enough to just call down angels to cast off the Romans? The answer is yes, he is strong enough. Isn't Jesus strong enough to just touch all the sick people and heal them? He is. Isn't Jesus strong enough to raise dead people back to life? Yes, he is. Jesus has the power to solve all of those problems, but... What they had a hard time remembering is something that we have a hard time remembering, too. And if I could please just have your attention right here, friends. If we're going to understand who King Jesus is, please just ask the Holy Spirit to let these truths seek into your heart right here, right now. One of the key things we have to understand is that human nature, there's something about us that we keep thinking what we really need is a Savior for who will rescue us from the problems out there. But guess where our deepest problem is? It's in here. We keep thinking we need a savior to rescue us from the evil out in the world. And like so many of these folks, we're anxious and we're bitter and we're frustrated. We lack peace and joy because the problems never go away out there in the world. But we need somebody to rescue us from the deep problem inside of us. Our sin, our selfishness, our pride that alienates us from God. I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but let me just say something by way of personal application here. There's a lot of us in here right now. I know because we're community and we share our struggles with each other, but I also know just because we're human beings. There's a lot of us in here right now who are frustrated by life circumstances. We got all sorts of problems and they're real problems. The Bible doesn't minimize them. Jesus cares about our problems, our relational problems, our financial problems. The pain that we're going through that nobody else can understand our struggles with physical illness or mental or emotional illness. Jesus understands all that. But here's the thing, friends. If Jesus moves right now to solve all of my relational problems and mental problems and emotional problems and financial problems 
and all the political problems in the world right now, we would celebrate. I would celebrate. Glory to God. Come solve these problems. But guess how long it would take for me to make new problems? We wouldn't even get out of church, friends. Tomorrow, I will have new relational problems. Next week, there will be new political and economic problems. I mean, it's amazing. Just in the history of the Bible, many times God removes an evil king and puts in a righteous king. The political problems are solved. But guess what? When God removes Saul and puts in David, David turns out to be a sinner too. And if God solves all my relational problems today, then tomorrow my selfishness and your selfishness can make some new ones. We want God to solve our external stuff, but Jesus keeps pressing us deeper and says, first, let's work on you. I want to save you from the deep core things. I don't want to just treat your symptoms. I want to heal your soul and your relationship with God. And since our problem is sin, the the solution is going to be much more costly. To solve our sin problem, Jesus doesn't just need to speak a word of power like, Lazarus, come out. Jesus needs to go to the cross. Where he's going to bear my sin and your sin, my death and your death, out of love for us, and then rise again for the life of the world. Next observation, though, is not only is Jesus the seed who dies for the life of the world, Jesus is the master whom we are called to serve, follow, and imitate. You see, right after... He speaks this word, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Look what verse 25 says. Whoever, everybody point to that word, whoever, and say, that's me. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loves his life loses it. Uh-oh, we wanted a Savior who was going to sort out all of our problems, external problems. But Jesus is saying right here that if your goal is to use him to be the savior who sorts out all your external problems so that you can have your dreams and ambitions to your life, then you're just going to lose your life. Do you see this? If, if you want, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. You can't use Jesus to be the savior for the life you've dreamed of. What do you need to do instead? Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Instead of just thinking, I need Jesus to solve all the problems I got going on in my life right now. I need to recognize I am my deepest problem and I have to die to myself if I want to know freedom. He goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. There is a joy. There's a a freedom, a blessing, an honor from God that Jesus promises, which is going to be bought for us by the death of Jesus Christ. But if we want to appropriate that for ourselves, we do it by having faith in Jesus. Everybody say faith. We trust in Jesus, but faith is a bigger, deeper word sometimes. than I think we give it credit for being here. Jesus expresses faith. By saying, if you really trust me, what that means is I'm your master and you follow me on a path of death that leads to resurrection. Why? Why is this? Why is this? We got to keep thinking about it. And in order to keep thinking about it, I think it's helpful for us to go back to the passage of Zechariah that they didn't understand. But look, look again, actually, at verse, chapter 12 of John verses six, 15 and 16 In verse 15. 
John quotes Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then it says this, verse 16. His disciples, the disciples of Jesus, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So Jesus' glorification is going to be his death on the cross, his resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And after all that has taken place, the disciples are going to look back and they're going to remember these events. They're going to remember Zechariah 9 and it's all going to click, but they don't understand it Yet. Now, I've, one of the things I've tried to teach you over the years is when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's a really good idea to go back and read that Old Testament passage in its context. So you can get a sense of what's being said here. So you can flip in your Bible or just look in your bulletin to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And we're going to keep making observations about Jesus because John chapter 12 has told us this passage in Zechariah 9 was about Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you want to have an extra big assignment, we've got levels for you, right? Assignment number one, go watch the Maccabees. Assignment number two, read Zechariah 9. Assignment number three, if you really want to go deep and get extra credit, you can go read the whole book of Zechariah this week. And it's a wonderful book. Zechariah has a lot of trippy dreams in this book. You're going to need a Bible, a study Bible or something to help you figure out what's happening here. But it's beautiful, powerful stuff. The people of God have returned from their exile Their time of discipline has ended. They've come back. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. And the prophet Zechariah is encouraging and ministering to the people. But in the last chapters of the book, beginning in chapter 9, the focus shifts to encouraging the people with the good news that a messianic king, an anointed savior from the line of David is about to come and rescue God's people and bring forth all the blessings that have still not yet come. And that's Jesus. Says our text. So look at Zechariah 9, beginning of verse 9. We already read that Jesus is coming humble and mounted on a donkey. But here's another observation about Jesus. King Jesus is coming to bring God's joy, righteousness, salvation, and peace to the world. Look at verse 9. It starts by saying, rejoice greatly. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, rejoice We've got something to be joyful about today, not because the world is great, but because we have a Savior who has overcome the world. And He's returning in glory to set everything right. He's bringing God's joy. It goes on to say, your King is coming to you righteous. Everybody say righteous. And having salvation. So He's the righteous King who's always fulfills The law of God, he's the righteous king who always keeps his promises, who keeps the covenant. And he's the king who has come to make us righteous. Aren't you tired of being a person who struggles with sin? If you want to learn the freedom of walking in righteousness, Jesus is the one who can help you out. He's the savior who comes to save us from Satan, from sin, from death and from all the evil in the world. And then look down at verse 10. The end of the verse says he shall speak peace. Everybody say peace to the nations. Not only that, the text says that Jesus is the liberator of prisoners. He's the liberator of prisoners. Look at the second half of verse 11. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. That's a good phrase. You should underline that phrase. O prisoners of hope. That's what God calls his people right here. Everybody say prisoners of hope. 
the, the first part of that phrase, prisoners, is acknowledging the fact that they are in trouble. They are imprisoned. They're bound. They are, even though they've returned from exile, things are not as they were supposed to be. The hearers of Zechariah's prophecy are saying, look, there is no glorious Davidic kingdom like Isaiah and Jeremiah told us about. We've got problems all around us. We're an impoverished, struggling, weak people. Where's the glorious new creation that we've been waiting for? They have real problems, and you also have real problems, don't you? Sometimes we feel imprisoned or entrapped by our own sin struggles, addiction struggles, or by those circumstances we were talking about a moment ago, financial, relational. But though God sees the reality that we often feel imprisoned, we are not prisoners without hope. He says prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. What does that mean? It means if you're feeling trapped, if you're feeling like you're in bondage, just know that is not your ultimate destiny because the Lord your God is a liberating God. He is coming with power to set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. But if we really want to understand what the disciples did not understand, then we need to look back at verse 11 which hints at the fact that Jesus is not only the righteous king who comes to save and to bring God's peace to the world and to liberate, but he is the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. Look with me at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. You might just underline those words. The blood of my covenant, the blood of my covenant. Now, for Zechariah's original hearers, they're probably thinking about the fact that they've rebuilt the temple. Blood sacrifice is being reinstituted now. And these sacrifices are a continual sign, a reminder of God's grace that though the people have sinned, God has made a covenant of grace with them and God as they make atonement for their sin and make sacrifices of purification and offer peace offerings and so on, that he is sustaining his covenant relationship with them by grace. But in this context of messianic hope, the verse is also pointing beyond that Old Testament experience to the reality towards which those Old Testament sacrifices were already pointing. This is the kind of phrase that Jesus is going to evoke on his, during his last supper. Just a few days from this moment when he pours out the wine into the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. See, the problems that we face are not just out there problems. They're in here problems. They're not just our circumstances. The pro our biggest problem is our sin. But why can we have hope that our sin can be dealt with? We can have hope because Jesus is the seed who gives his life for us. And Jesus is the sacrifice who pours out his blood so we can live in a covenant of peace with God. As we try to soak all this in today on this Palm Sunday, friends, I just want to remind you that King Jesus, whom we've been beholding today, he's alive. He's real. He's sitting on a throne. He sent his spirit. As a matter of fact, he promised to his disciples that wherever two or three 
are gathered in his name, he's there with them. Remember that? His presence is made known in a special way. And I'm looking around counting. We should have that covered today. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is here. Now, his kingdom has come and we're still waiting for his second coming when the reign of God overcomes all the wickedness in the world. But the reality is that his kingdom is already upon us. And as we gaze at Jesus and behold Jesus and just try to meditate on the glory of who he is. I have a question for you. Do you want the liberating power of King Jesus to be unleashed in your life? Good. Okay. (laughs) Follow up question. Do you want the joy of Jesus Christ unleashed in your life? Do you want the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers to you? I mean, there's a lot of goodness associated with King Jesus here. Do you want all of that goodness? Do you want to be on the inside of his kingdom receiving his forgiveness and grace? Or do you want to be on the outside of his kingdom facing Well-deserved judgment. That's the question which forces us to a crisis. Is Jesus king in general or is he also king of my life? Chauncey drew us to this tension that we each have to face. Is Jesus just Lord out there in the universe or is Jesus also Lord of me? Is he Lord of my heart? All of this stuff we've been saying about King Jesus is objectively true, whether you believe it and embrace it or not. He really is the king, whether we feel like it or not. Aren't you glad that the reality of who Jesus is does not fluctuate with your spiritual and emotional condition? I was uh, speaking to a group last week. um, Another church for their Lenten series, they invited me to come talk. And I just said, hey, I got to confess with you that my spiritual growth chart has not been one of unremitting upward progress. Sometimes it's like I'm walking by faith. For a day, and then I'm stumbling through a fog of doubt and skepticism for the next week. I'm walking in joy for a day. I'm walking in love for a a day or whatever. And then for some undisclosed amount of time, I'm super grumpy. Which, if you think about it, I've just been thinking about the fact that there's not really any of the fruit of the Spirit which are compatible with being super grumpy. Love, joy, peace, patience. There's just not a lot of compatibility there. Sometimes I struggle, and I know you do too. But the reality, the objective reality of who King Jesus is doesn't change when we struggle. But if we want that objective reality to get connected to our subjective experience, then what we need to hear is this truth that Jesus says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I want to end today with this thought. Something for you to reflect on. Something I'm reflecting on. When we think about the kingdom of Jesus, there's a danger that we might be trying to mold Jesus And to a make-believe Savior who will solve all the problems we want him to solve. Now, I want you to take just a moment and reflect on the fact that you've got a lot of problems in your life that you would like Jesus to sort out. Right? I do too. There's nothing wrong with that. And when Jesus returns in glory, all those external problems are going to be sorted out. Pain because of broken relationships will be sorted out when Jesus reconciles all things. 
wounds from our past will be healed. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. It's going to happen when Jesus comes back. But the danger here is that we stay in this place spiritually where we're thinking, you know what? If those problems were sorted out now, then I would be good. But since they're not sorted out now, I'm going to be mad. I'm going to be frustrated. I read a Christian writer this week who made a statement that I thought was helpful. Unrealistic expectations are the mother of bitterness. If we start thinking, hey, everything's going to get sorted out in my life quickly, then we start getting bitter, right? So here's what that might look like practically. If everybody in my work started treating me right and my boss started treating me with the respect that I deserve, then I would be happy. And what I'm trying to say is maybe Jesus is trying to flip the script here and say, one day when I come back, there will be no more broken relationships and economic exploitation at your job. But the question is right now, will you die to yourself and love your mean boss? Because that would unleash freedom and joy in your life. We could even talk about our families or we could even talk about the church. Anybody? Maybe I won't ask you to raise your hands. Maybe I will. It could be fun. Anybody ever come to church and think if all these other people would act right and get things together, I would like church? I mean, I, I think that sometimes when I hang out with, with you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, Mr. Webb's been trying to sort me out. I appreciate that, brother. Keep, keep at it. Keep persevering. <laughs> That's right. And he's making progress. But the thing is, he may never fully accomplish this task. Here's the thing. Sometimes we keep thinking, hey, if everybody else in the church would act right, if my friends would love me like Jesus told them to love me. If the church leaders would solve all of our problems, everything would be great. But maybe what Jesus is saying to us today is if you would die to your expectations of how things ought to be and just say, Jesus, I deserve hell, but you saved me. You're the Lord. And I want to love these people. Maybe the liberating power of God would be unleashed in your life. Maybe in your family, you're wrestling with if my spouse or if my kids would just act right. If God would just answer my prayers to fix my spouse, then marriage would be good. And maybe what Jesus is saying is it's time for you to die to yourself, to your sin, to your expectations and say, you know what? I deserve judgment, but Jesus is Lord. So I've got hope and I've got joy and I'm just going to serve my spouse with humility because that's the way of the kingdom of God. And maybe the reality is that if we would open our hearts in that way, liberating power would be unleashed among us. As we go to the Lord's table, I want to go with joy, but also with a sense of holy repentance and brokenness and surrender. This Friday is Good Friday when we remember that Jesus is the seed and the sacrifice who made a way for us to have peace with God. And then comes Resurrection Sunday. And as we're going into this holy week in the Christian calendar, I just want us to remember he's a great savior, whether we see it and know it or not. But if we want to appropriate that liberating grace and power in our lives, the call is to come and die so that we may live. And when we go to the Lord's table, we're remembering and appropriating Christ's sacrifice to us. And we're confessing again, you're the Lord. I'm dying to myself. Unleash your powerful grace in my life. Let's pray together in preparation. Lord, we just confess it again. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. And in a moment, we're about to confess that together and confess our sins together. But even right now, I just want to say, Lord, we are a broken people in need of your grace. 
We thank you for the grace that is already ours, that your word says in Christ we're new creations, we're your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we still battle the flesh day by day. And we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit right now to put to death the attitudes of the flesh and the thoughts of the flesh and the deeds of the flesh. And I just want to pray right now. Lord, we sung a moment ago that Jesus has the power to break every chain. And we just read in your word that you set prisoners free from the waterless pit. And I know that for many of us here right now, there are not just individual sins, but some cycles and some attitudes and patterns that have been hindering us from experiencing the freedom and the joy that is ours in Christ. And I pray that even in these moments, as we repent and as we respond with, to the gospel with faith, that you would break chains. Break chains and give us the grace to die to ourselves and to walk in the freedom that is our birthright as the children of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.